Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. Just a warning before we get into the episode proper. There were some recording difficulties that we were unaware of until the recording was actually complete and done, and so it's going to be difficult to hear quite a bit of what our guest has to say, unfortunately. And he had some interesting things to say, so I really do apologize, Larry, for the quality being so poor on this one. We'll make it up to you next time. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Before we begin tonight's discussion, just wanted to say congratulations to our erstwhile panelist, Trey Corte, who got married this past weekend Woo! to his wonderful husband. So congratulations, guys. You did it! Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the mindful task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whip, and today we have an often mindful discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There is also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. And this time, we have a special guest, the host and producer of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, as well as someone who's been a Who fan since longer than I have, since uh, 1973, I believe you said, and <laughs> since watching this story is your very first one, and that is Larry Van Mersberg. And hello, Larry. Hello, it's actually 1975, and ah. that's the same year I saw Mind of Evil in color for the first time. Oh, really? Okay. So you didn't have to worry about the recolorized versions that we've had to worry about on DVD and all that? No, because I, I saw it in color for real the first time, uh, the second time in black and white, and the last few times recolorized. Okay. <clears throat> we'll have to talk about which one you preferred there, because uh, I've only seen it the one way, and I know I prefer it to black and white, but... Uh, before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those that you throw them at random children walking down your street. Not even mean children. Just not mean even children. mean children. You have enough of them. They're like 162 <laughs> of the things. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find them here, there rather, at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now. What are you doing to him? Nothing. She's waving a TARDIS pendant in front of... She's, in she's front of, um, working her hypnotic spell. I, I, and I don't know why. Trying she's trying to pick up skills for the master, and it's not working out for me no, so far. No, of course not. That's all right. We continue now with our discussion of the second novelization from Season 8, The Mind of Evil. Without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who The Mind of Evil, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Dave Houghton, that aired from 1371 to 3671, published by Target Books in July 1985. As of this recording in June of 2019, this title is currently out of print and is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. Now, a little bit of background on the story, of course, before we uh, get started. I promised a biography of Roger Delgado this month, and given the surprise reappearance of the Master in the story, even though he's on the cover and everything, <laughs> it seemed like a good time to introduce him. Roger Cesar Marius Bernard de Delgado Torres Castillo Roberto, I just love saying his full first name, was born in London in 1918, and as such, he was actually one year older than John Pertwee. Despite his mother being Belgian and his father Spanish, he always claimed to be a true Cockney because he was born within the sound of the bow bells, which I guess is a thing. His upbringing, however, is definitely not Cockney, and before he decided to pursue a career in acting, he actually attended the London School of Economics. Just as Pertwee did, he served in World War II, but in the British Army Infantry, where he eventually achieved the rank of Major. He was married twice, and his second wife, Kismet Shahani would eventually voice a villain in Pertwee's last story. From the time he did his first TV work in 1948, he appeared in a lot of shows and movies, including the TV version of a serial we've mentioned before, Quatermass 2, and had worked with John Pertwee many times. It was, in fact, his death in a car crash in Turkey in 1973 at the age of 55 that was one of the deciding factors in Pertwee leaving the series. The production team were originally going to write the Master out in a story that would have had him finally going good again and joining forces with the Doctor before dying in a major sacrifice, but of course that story was cancelled, and I'm sure they would have brought him back anyway, so we'd probably still have Missy now, even if he had died then. The plan was always to bring back the Master immediately, and the production team were so impressed with Inferno that they asked Don Houghton to do another script for them. Apparently, he also saw this as an opportunity to get his Chinese-born wife, Pick Sen Lin, some more exposure into her acting career, and he wrote the part of Chin Li entirely for her. She also coached Pertwee for his dialogues spoken in the Hokkien dialect on screen, but his difficulty with the pronunciation meant he would say a lot less on screen than he does on the page. I guess there are a lot of S's in Hokkien. <clears throat> <laughs> Yeah. This is also one of the few Doctor Who stories to get a director blackballed. Uh, Timothy Culm, who directed uh, Doctor Who and the Silurians the previous year, went way over budget and was banned by producer Barry Lutz from ever working on the show again. (laughs) Katie Manning still considers this her favorite story, despite getting injured again during filming. The poor dear. And one last bit of trivia... This is one of the last few stories that for years existed only in black and white, as Larry mentioned. 
Episodes 2 through 6 were restored to color using a method called chroma dot restoration that actually pulls the original color video information from black and white film, which is just magical somehow. Hmm. Problem okay. is, they didn't have a suitable version of episode 1 to do that with, so the YouTuber known as Babel Color, Stuart Humphreys, was contracted to manually recolor all of that episode. And to my mind, it looks better than the other five, so that tells you something. And you may have noticed I didn't bother redacting the cover of this one, mainly because we knew we'd be seeing the Master again. But I wanted, uh, before we get to Larry, I wanted to ask either Dalton or Allison, were you surprised to see him literally in the very next story? Yes. And I would have been more surprised to see him starting about a third of the way through the book if he hadn't had his name and face on the cover. <laughs> True. Because I would not have jumped to that conclusion really? based on the story. Oh, I was thinking of redacting it, but then I was like, well... Yeah, I I wouldn't have expected it. I, I would have thought, oh, this is just some other earthling that is being used by some alien species to do its bit. Oh, okay. So if I had redacted it, you wouldn't have suspected it was the master I was redacting for? No. Okay. I would have thought it would Not possibly been some... No. no, but... Probably the ice holders again or something like that. Or just something that we wanted to be surprised by. Okay. All right. Um, Larry, you said that... You, did you say this was the first story you ever saw? No, actually, the first story I ever saw was Claws of Axos. Oh. And, of course, this one came right after that. And I'll never forget, because I was six years old when I saw the story. And as soon as he took the rubber mask off, my mother behind me said, Oh, my God, it's the master. <laughs> and I thought, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I was very excited even then. And, of course, uh, not knowing anything about the storylines uh, as, as a child like that, it was a really nice surprise to see him back and of course coming back again and again and being kind of that uh, Moriarty to Kirkley's uh, Sherlock Holmes. Yes. As a matter of fact, you and I have both managed to semi-spoil something for our panelists because oh. you just told them he's going to return again in the next story. Oh. Which he does. Well, I think, I think <laughs> last, on, the, on the last book we read, you mentioned that we're going to see a lot of him. So we it's... will indeed. In fact, every single story the whole season. season. Yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. season. The whole season. Which, yeah. I'm not disappointed with it. it it's, it's kind of a new... New direction for Doctor. Yeah, for Doctor so. Who at this time, it certainly is because it it's what amounts to a plot arc. Yeah, yeah, yes. absolutely. Well, the last book that we read was a seventies book, right? Mm-hmm. This is nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. It right. makes sense that he's on the cover because um, that you want to advertise this book stars a character you like, a recurring villain you okay. like, and that would be obvious otherwise in 1985. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about first impressions of this one. I'm going to give Larry the floor, since he has the uh, probably read this book before I did, because I don't think I read this until I was an adult. Yes, I actually uh, I read the uh, paperback first, and then I read the hardcover edition, and just recently, I did the unabridged audio read by Richard Franklin. Mm, the uh, the actor who plays Mike Hayes. Yes, and his John Kirkley impersonation is dead on, so I highly recommend the audio book. Really? Um, yes, it's very well written. It's actually unabridged, and so I actually read along with the audio book just to test it out, and it's exactly word for word. 
Fantastic. So, uh, for those of you who are not visual, the audiobook is a really wonderful way to go. And it's still in print. Oh, excellent. I didn't realize but, it was still in print. Oh, yes. I bought my new, actually, from BBC Audio, so you can still get it. Oh, wow. Um, okay. The, uh, the, the nice thing about this story, and uh, I, I love the fact that the villain from the get-go uh, is not the master, but this machine that is set up to rehab criminals, and automatically the doctor is going after that, and you don't realize until a little bit later that the master's involved. Mm-hmm. And so that's I'm laughing because I love the doctor's heckling. <laughs> oh yeah, and that yes. first scene where he's heckling, uh, heckling the Everybody. demonstration. <laughs> yes, which which is totally within his character to do that because he's vastly superior to the rest of them. <laughs> and um, that was just a, a great thing. And in the book, it's even more detailed. So I thought you know, from the from the show, yeah, he's interrupted twice, but I think he does it a few more times. In the yeah, book. he really does. <laughs> and he's like, "If you finish, sir," it's like, and, and Tony, you and I were teachers, so you know yes. what it's like to be heckled. So. <laughs> yeah, I just did that this morning, so I know exactly what you're talking about. By the way, for our regular listeners, if you're noticing a bit of a slight different sound quality, it's because we were recording in my office at school. I, I won't say which one. I'll let you figure that out on your own. But um, yeah, in fact, there was that line in that first chapter, he had never suffered from false modesty. And I'm wondering if Dix was saying that about the third doctor, saying that about John Pertwee. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I I had the privilege of meeting John Pertwee, and he's very much, um, he he was a, I'd say my memories of him are wonderful, but yes, he's very much the most important man in the room. And he walks into the dealer's room at TARDIS 22 with his hands on his hips. I am the doctor. <laughs> so uh, that, that is definitely him. And who was to say otherwise? Absolutely. Well, um, along with him at that conference was Patrick Troughton, and he did give him a hard time. Oh, yes. <laughs> that wasn't the one where they went after each other with the, uh, the Nerf uh, water pistols, was it? Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> It's also the same conference, uh, and I mentioned this at uh, the John Pertley panel back at Chicago TARDIS, but I actually was taking an elevator, got in, and John Pertley was in full Wurzel Gummage costume and character. <laughs> and he hit every button on the elevator and said, this is going to be a fun ride. <laughs> <laughs> and did this act for about 10 minutes that I, of course, this is uh, decades before smartphones, it's never captured. Oh, but, wow. uh, uh, it was just, I'll never forget that. That was just the best memory of, of meeting uh, such a great man who, uh, you know, just had this amazing talent. And talk about captive audiences, right? Yeah. Oh, because yeah. Who else is going to see this performance? Just the people getting on the elevator. Pe- people are piling in the elevator, and he's going, plenty of room, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I rode it all the way up to the 20th floor. Of course, I got off, and then he went up to his... I think he was getting ready to change for the next panel, but he just had a lot of fun with the fans. And I really appreciate uh, an actor who's not afraid to be themselves or be funny or, or interact with people. Yeah, absolutely. That really does come across in this book, because I think this is uh, just just saying in general, one of the things that impresses me is that when Terrence Dix is writing about both the Doctor and the Master, he seems a little more engaged in in the mm-hmm. whole enterprise. Yeah, this yeah. reads a bit better than the other mid '80s 
Diggs. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I see uh, Dalton's <laughs> yeah. nodding his head. Yeah, it actually feels like he cares yes. somewhat. Yeah. So. But she still does, actually. I was actually worried when I saw the publication date. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. It's late, mid to yeah. late 80s dicks. He's not interested anymore. <laughs> he doesn't care, but... But he did. Well, in, in 1985, if I could speak to that, there was a whole new market that opened up for the books. Uh, Lyle Stewart in the United States began distributing. And, uh, uh, you know, long story short, I had a Doctor Who store in 1985, and we were the first ones to have... The hardcover editions. Oh, and yeah. It was amazing. And we've never known they existed before, so we were the only dealer that had them. And I still have my copy of Mind of Evil, is from 1985. It still has the $12 price tag on it from Miles Stewart. Oh, wow. wow. That's and amazing. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, so there was a whole new market in 85, it exploded. So that's why Terrence Sticks was put to work once again, along with some of the other writers. But it does seem, and we've noticed this on this program a couple times, that it does feel like the quality diminishes after a bit of time, doesn't it, between 85 and the last few books that he put out in 89 and 90? Yes, the market started to slow down in 89, especially when the show was canceled. That, and he, I guess, was getting other work elsewhere and wasn't quite as committed to the range. Yes, and the pay went down. And the pay went down. Yeah. Ironically, yeah. yeah, you would think that, and I remember hearing this, that he was getting paid more for those early Target novels than he was for these later ones. Gotcha. Yes, that's true. And uh, when I talked to John Peel, he said the same thing. It got very frustrating to write for Doctor Who because the money started to go down and down, but they demanded so much more. Well, from what I gathered from him, his experience with Virgin was much better than his experience with Target. Yes, that's so true. That makes sense, of course. Because Target was on its way out and Virgin was uh, taking over at that yeah. point. Yes, W.H. Allen was having all kinds of money problems towards the end of the 80s. It was, of course, at this point, dear listeners, that I completely forgot to have our guest read aloud the back cover of the book. Sorry about that, Larry. We will definitely have you do that next time. In the meantime, here is the back text for The Mind of Evil. Eminent scientist Emil Keller has developed a revolutionary new process for the treatment of hardened criminals. His invention, the Keller machine, is being heralded as a major scientific breakthrough. But Professor Keller is in truth the master, and the Keller machine is much more than a mere machine. Soon the doctor is involved in a bitter struggle with his deadliest enemy, an alien mind parasite and a diabolical scheme to plunge the world into a third world war. So back to the book. Where do we want to start? (laughs) What stood out to us? What did we like? What did we dislike? It seemed like this season it's taken, the stories have taken a little more of a turn for horror than we've seen before. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought this was actually a terrific little horror story. Oh, really? This was giving me Nightmare on Elm Street, like, yeah. Seriously? I was, the descriptions of the scenes of the people being affected by the machine and hmm. dying, that is totally Freddy Krueger. Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? it? It actually is much more detailed in the book than in the show. Uh, when, you, when the guy starts drowning, it is so descriptive, and 
this this machine, I mean, I had nightmares about this machine when I was six. So it, it was yeah, highly effective. Oh yeah. It's horrifying. It's yeah. That that's what I was picking up on was this had a very much the same feeling as Nightmare on Elm Street, where hmm. it's all in their head. You know, the scenes where they're depicting people right. observing them, and it's like there's nothing there, but the person is right. reacting to it. I wonder if Dix was playing off that to some degree because Elm Street was 1984, right? Yeah. Yeah, and this would have been published the year after, so it's still fresh in people's minds, even the British public's minds. So, yeah, yeah, it, it really is quite effective. And I agree with you there, Larry, that it's so much more effective on the page than it is on screen because some of the, <laughs> yeah, some of those sequences look really awful on screen. Oh, so. and uh, the budget they had in, uh, in that early time period just the, the wavy lines and the and the kind of the, the badly over superimposed images of water and fire. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, of course, when I saw it as a little kid, I was horrified by it. But as I saw it as an adult, I thought, "Wow, that's really bad." And I kind of hoped that they could use some CGI improvements <laughs> to to make that a little bit better. But yeah, the book does it much more. I mean, much more horrifying uh, to describe it and put that image in your head, and you have your own image of this man drowning in a dry room. Did the dragon scare you as a six-year-old, Larry? Oh, yeah. And that dragon was horribly done. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really just, was. It, it was. It was really bad. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there was, it was surprising. It was, uh, you know, as, and I do remember it vividly when I was a child, and I thought, oh, my God, that dragon. I looked at it recently, and I thought, that is a paper mache movement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, the whole Chinese subplot, don't even, you know, that's another whole area that I, have, that I have a problem with, because there was no reason for it. You know, we, in fact, have to address that, because that is the uh, dragon in the room, as we <laughs> yes. say. I have to address the dragon in the room, I'm afraid, yes. Right. <laughs> in fact, that dragon was so unimpressive that the production team dubbed it Puff the Magic Dragon. Yeah, or was it HR Puffin stuff? It was one of those two, (laughs) and they basically gave it as little screen time as possible. Whereas on on the page, it's halfway effective. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Though I think it probably could have done with a few illustrations, seventies style. That that might have actually been uh, interesting to see for this particular book. Well, we might as well jump into that the whole Chinese thing. Yeah. Because, oh my lord, uh, what did you all think? Was well, this... Go ahead. The, the character of Chin Li, as, we, as you talked about in the introduction, was basically Don Houghton's wife. So it was a whole lot of nepotism just to get her in there. But once she did her thing, which we assume is a master's uh, subplot to try to drive war without launching this missile, but he had the plan to capture the missile anyway. So there didn't seem to be a whole lot. And then there was this excuse to give the doctor um, an idea that he could speak fluent Chinese in two dialects. So there, and, and John Pertwee, I guess, had a real hard time with it, as I recall. And so they, so they used very few lines with it. And, and the actor who played the Chinese delegate was absolutely awful. And he, he said very little, which was good. And, and you can actually see, watch the scene again, 
you could see Nicholas Courtney roll his eyes. <laughs> and I think they kept it in. Because it looked like he was irritated with the whole scene. Yeah. And, and in addition to being irritated as a character that the guy won't talk to him, he's like, this is a complete waste of my time standing here while this is going on, and it has nothing to do with the whole plot of the story. No. No. No, it's not not whatsoever. In fact, in my notes, I think I even said, why is this here? Apart from the fact that we see this guy attacked by Chin Lee later, so we need to know who he is. Right. That's about it. Yeah, and the, the whole thing with the U.S. Senator, and again, like Claws of Axos, getting a British actor to play an American, you know, it's, uh, oh, the accent was terrible. But once they, once they got rid of the Chinese part of it, it got a lot better. Mm-hmm. True, true, though. I'd say that the senator in this uh, story is a lot better than the FBI agent we're going to get oh, next much, time. Much better. Oh, oh, God. Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> Lordy, that's for sure. But back to this Chinese thing. Did it strike any of you all as unnecessary yes. to be there? Yeah, I I was going along with it. I'm like, okay, surely this is going to amount to something. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, this is just fluff. I actually searched for the names of Chen Li and Yates because I thought maybe I had missed something in the plot because I was oh. so sure that towards the end, one of them was going to come back and some some way save the day or mess things up oh. or try to help the master or something like that. And both of them uh, duck out around page 70 or 75. <laughs> Chen Li is off to be incarcerated. And uh, Yates is sent off to facilitate the evacuation. So I actually, in my mind, thought that the um, Chinese delegate and Chin Li might turn out to be these sort of interesting character actors on screen, which isn't oh. coming across, because oftentimes mm-hmm. the, the guests are sort of well-known character actors. But it sounds like, no, no. no. So I thought it made sense in context to have a setting of a conference debating over these weapons, but then it just never came back again. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were building up to something that was kind of interesting, yeah. but mm-hmm. did not. It should have connected. It and... seemed like they got fired halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been. But it was actually worth it for them not to come back, to not have some kind of horrific scene where Chintley responds to the advances of a man who refers to her as being a dolly. Yes. So, I was there, worried that was coming. So it was a relief that that did not... I will say this again about the uh, televised version that the actress herself is actually pretty good. Yes, oh yes. That being said, whoever decided to tell Dudley Simpson that it was okay to quote Chinese style music whenever she appears on oh, screen. Gosh. Oh, it's embarrassing. That was that was very uh, very uncomfortable. Yeah. You need an audio cue to know that she's Chinese. Come on, Tommy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, ridiculous. Oh, yeah. No. Really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there was enough. There were enough tensions between the U.S. and China at the time, but not to the degree that it would have made sense to say have a Russian agent doing that part. But of course, Don Houghton being so big into Chinese stuff, decided to put it in. So I suspect what happened is this. It's accurate on the page, on the script, mm-hmm. but then you get a production team that knows nothing about China and Chinese cultures involved in it, and it's just as embarrassing as the brigadier saying, no, he's not all Ken, doctor, he's Chinese, now come on. Right. It's just embarrassing. Yeah. Which actually was a very funny line. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But it definitely kind of... Uh, 
mirrors what they probably was thinking, were thinking uh, behind the scenes, especially calling it the Orient, which always gets me even now. Yes. 1985 is already way too late for the Orient. Yes, yeah. I would agree. I would agree. Just to kind of throw this in there, this whole um, idea of a peace conference being threatened and something to do with the Chinese does come again. I'm not going to give away the story. Yeah, so they they at least have that going. The unit has its own kind of continuity, so they're on their own doing things while the doctor is doing his thing, and they sometimes come together and mesh as they do here. Mm -hmm. I thought they were going to get something more profound with the machine specifically generating fear and the idea of Ooh. fear and paranoia of the other. Oh. But, kind of, but no. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. That would have been an interesting turn to take. But no, that's not the that's not the way they went. Let's talk about the master's plan because, as most of his plans go, it's just crazy. Well, last story we had the doctor. We had the master being annoyed with the doctor because he tried to kill him a couple of times and it hadn't worked. And in fact, his whole plan was behind schedule because of the doctor. Right. And the first scene where he's identified here, we have, oh goodness, what is it? It was the face of the master, a renegade time lord, dedicated to evil for evil's sake, and the doctor's oldest and bitterest enemy. That <laughs> escalated quite a bit between yeah. the two adaptations. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> From the guy who kind of annoyed him badly and then annoyed him quite badly yes. in the previous story. Exactly. But it's such a crazy plan, and it's, of course, one of those plans that he has to have the doctor try to bail him out of. And he still tries to kill him with a missile, or tries to kill him in general. It, yeah, this whole business with the uh, creature in the, the machine. There's much more on the page about it than there is on screen, but there isn't much more. You, you have no idea how the Master got hold of this thing. Yeah, where did it come from? Mm -hmm. If he's been stranded on Earth, just like the Doctor has, mm -hmm. then, yeah. Where did... Probably something he had in his TARDIS, just in case. You know, I got, I got this mind parasite. I think I'll put it to good use now. Because a cold tire. Right. Where did I leave that thing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it yes. Yeah, it's over here underneath the electric chair. Okay, yeah. yeah I actually kind of like that he's now, quote, evil for evil's sake. That was kind of fun, as opposed to having a specific elaborate plan for reforming the universe. Yeah. Remaking his own image. No, no, I'm evil for evil's sake. It's fun. <laughs> yes. Just because I can. Because it is the mind of evil. Ha-ha. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, let's see. What else? Um, speaking of other bits of racism, um, the most casually racist line I think Dix has ever written in his career is referring to the chauffeur as big and black and powerful as the car he drove. Yeah, that was pretty pretty bad. Oh, yeah. I, I guess we should count our, thank our lucky stars he didn't say more about the chauffeur because, to be honest, the guy isn't on screen long enough to actually even leave an impression. Apart from being well, one of the few people of color on screen at that time. Yeah. yeah, my impression of the chauffeur is that he was just under the master's hypnotic spell and he saw him when needed, when he was driving the car, and that was about it. See, I didn't even think he was under his spell. I just figured he'd hired him. Yeah, he just did his job. Well, I'm sure he probably had something to say, you know, don't say anything about this, because he's got this listening device in the back of the car. And All right. the guy's got to go, uh, what are you doing back there? You know, That's that kind right. Of thing. Driver roll so, up the partition. Right. Yeah. So 
not so good. But um, of course, just to go back to the car, my all-time favorite scene has to be when he turns on that sinister music. Yes. On the show, and it's just. Oh my gosh, so he's evil. He's got to listen to evil music. <laughs> it really was. It was like this organ Easy music. Easy, evil listening. just so evil. And uh, it, 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 of course he switches it off and it's, all right, I'm here, I'm back. You know, it's a specific song too, isn't it? Some sort of really kind of dark hard rock I, song that was popular at the I time. I think so. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to find a reference to it. I still look every once in a while, but... It, it was enough of a, of a dark sound to go, wow, this is evil music. There you go. Yeah. And of course that makes sense with the new master playing Here Come the Drums when he takes over the world. <laughs> yeah, his taste in music hasn't really improved much. <laughs> no. Truly <laughs> bad taste. Yes. <laughs> that. How about the regulars? The panelists that are here, Larry, aren't really as familiar with Joe Grant as you and I are. So I've been kind of checking in with them to see how they feel she's developing. This is her second story. How are you all getting along with her so far with Josephine Grant? Mm. <laughs> what was that? Mm. Yeah. It's, it's another one of those, like, she had a little more to do, but it still wasn't a lot, so I still yeah. don't really have much of an opinion of her. Okay. Moments of competency. Yeah. Moments of competency. Now, Larry, you actually yeah. talk with Katie Manning on a regular basis, and she says this is one of her favorite stories. Has she yeah. ever said why? Well, uh, I talk with her about once a week, actually. We've been corresponding for over 25 years. Wow. That's and, amazing. Uh, I met her in Chicago at uh, the 85 convention, and she was just so wonderful. She gave me her address to write to her, and now we talk via Twitter. Oh, wow. So uh, she's really wonderful. And uh, when I mentioned to her that it was going to appear on this podcast, she said that her memories of filming this were quite nice, except that um, it was freezing. Yes. And so all the scenes that were outside, they weren't, you know, she was basically wearing a sweater. And John Pertwee just had his tuxedo coat, but the temperature was more like 20 degrees. Ooh. And some of the unit people were the same way. They, they were like doing these extended scenes in the prison yard or in the, in the field or by the warehouse, and it was really cold. But she also remembers that uh, some uh, a nice lady who lived near where they filmed at the prison always brought them tea because the BBC didn't take care of them very well back then. Oh, God. <laughs> so... Yeah, which shouldn't surprise you because that didn't come till much later. But the, uh, That's true. Uh, but, but Katie said it was great, and you know she she often talks about John. Uh, they were friends on and off screen all the way up until his passing, and she never commemorates. Uh, people always post to her that oh he died on this day, and she goes I don't think about that. He's always alive in my heart. And um, he was one of the greatest people I've ever worked with. He was my best friend. Uh, he gave her a lot of acting tips, helped develop her character. And she said that she grew a lot during The Mind of Evil, because the, the six-parter is, you know, uh, she did a, the four-part with Terror of the Autons, 
the six-parter took a lot longer, so there was a lot more time involved, and uh, she had a lot of chance to, to interact. She also was very good friends with Roger Delgado as well, and uh, he was actually a lot more like a father to her on the set. You know, when, when she needed coaching, he always helped her out too. So it's kind of, it, if you kind of imagine when they called cut, and they all kind of put their arms around each other and had a sandwich and chatted and, you know, before, this is before the days of checking your phone, checking this and that. So they actually had time, they had time to do this. And it was, it was very cool. So she was very positive and she, she wished us all the best uh, on this production. But uh, sadly, she couldn't do anything for it. She's, uh, she's busy as a grandmother, you know. Yes, <laughs> so, she's a full-time grandma right now. Full-time grandma, so her time is limited, uh, which is why I, I talk to her about once a week. She writes a very long letter and be right back. And it, I, hope, uh, I hope they bring her back to Chicago soon. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because I will definitely hit her up for a, uh, for a bumper for the beginning of our uh, episode at some point. We, yes, I would definitely. love to have her do that. Especially since she's one of the few pertly people I can ask these days, because she's yeah. here fine, still. Mike Gates is still here. Benton is still here, but no one else is really. That's about it. Um, and John Levine is going to be is uh, doing more and more. I guess he's writing a book, and you know he's he's even asked, you know, hey, I'd love to come back if you want me. You know, Benton can live again, or you know, and he had some great stories. Just a, just a wonderful man, a good actor. Uh, you know, he was a BBC stock, you know, staff actor, and uh, the recurring role of Benton, he said, was a blessing. Yeah, yeah, he's always uh, thanked his lucky stars for having it. So back to the book, because it's really, really easy, obviously, to talk about the show. But <laughs> what else? What else about the book is striking? I'm kind of annoyed with Dix because I feel like all the wonderful things that Larry just described didn't come through at all. In right. this adaptation here, right? Joe seems like you know, perfectly competent junior agent and semi-professional hostage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As well, but now I get the you know I, I you know get this report of this wonderful vibrant performance that um, we're not getting here. Maybe just Dix doesn't really quite know what to do with the character. He's had Possibly. practice by this time because he really knows. how many how many books has he written with this character by the time this actually comes out? He probably, in fact, Larry, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I think Terrence Dix will have written something like six or seven books featuring Joe before he gets to this one. I believe so. That sounds about right. And, and even going back to 1975, so quite a long time. Yeah, so he's you're right. He's had practice. And while he has been known to not share, well, how to put this, um, I think Dix was less impressed with Katie's acting than he was with some of the other actresses, but even that would not be an excuse for him to minimize the time that she has on the page. I think, right. he, I think he handles her fairly well on the page, to be honest. I think he does it better in the later books than he did in the earlier ones. Agreed. Well, she gets a lot more to do there, too. Yes, absolutely. She's one of the few companions that ramps up an activity rather than ramps down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Allison, you're absolutely right. At this point, she is kind of a prof- professional victim still. But she has a few moments in this one, such as um, rendering the uh, one guard unconscious and holding a gun on the other one. And maybe that's what uh, Katie was liking so much about this story. I'm sorry, she did get empowered... And one of my favorite lines is when the governor finally comes in and she goes, 
there, I've got it settled for you. Yes, yes, that was a good moment. Like, it's, yes. like, it's like, he's all yours. I did my job. You definitely you know, get the idea just, in the previous one and this one. She's maybe not coming into her own, but she's going to. She's figuring mm-hmm. things out. Yeah. She goes, yeah. she's scrappy, she's learning. She has potential. Yes. She has potential. I don't hate her, but no. it's... This is early days. This is still very early. It's very so, early. Yeah, so I just don't know where it's going to go. Well, she's going to get a lot more time than we ever had with Liz because, I mean, it's the equivalent of three seasons. Liz was a stronger background presence, I feel like, yeah. than Joe's written Yes, yes, she was. I agree. I agree. Um, what else? I'm looking through my notes here to figure out what we thought of the uh, the book as com- uh, compared to the on screen and what moments stood out to us. I find it particularly interesting, for instance, that uh, when the Doctor's being tortured almost to death, the, he gets flashes of the Daleks, obviously, but he also gets a Silurian, which is just kind of weird because they're not a villain, and then he gets a War Machine, and he just thinks it's interesting enough to mention in the novelization. It's right there on screen, but it's kind of like, the hell? That was whatever footage they had on hand for the montage. Yeah, photos. Yeah. They threw photos at it. It's awful on screen, but it's actually somewhat terrifying on the page. It's impossible to see it as a war machine that goes by so quickly on the screen. Yeah, and I noticed that with the colorized version, too. It's just a blur. Yeah, it's not very clear. And I, of course, when I saw it as a kid, I had no idea what it was. Right. And, uh, you know, later on, of course, figuring out that it kind of looks like a war machine. And, you know, just, and of course, when I read the book in 85, and, oh, yeah, it's a war machine. Okay, there you go. But kind of a random thing to throw in there. Speaking of random things, you said they did something very interesting for that scene in the audiobook. Oh yes, absolutely, because they they actually had uh, Nicholas Briggs do the Dalek voices for the nightmare scene when he's hooked up, and the uh, the machine. You can hear they actually do sound effects on the audiobook. You hear the machine roaring up in its usual sound, and then. All of a sudden, you hear the Daleks come in, exterminate. It's Nicholas Briggs is quoted as uh, is credited with that. So that was kind of a nice surprise on the audiobook. The box was throbbing with energy now, and its electronic pulsing shook the entire room. First came the flames. The doctor braced himself. The flames weren't real. The terror of the inferno was past. A huge-eyed reptilian snout swam towards him out of the fire. A Silurian. Instinctively, the doctor shrank back. The Silurian faded and a Dalek swam towards him. Its harsh, metallic voice grating inside his head. Exterminate! 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 Well, he's always down to do Dalek voices, that's for sure. <laughs> I think he, could, he always says it's Dalek voices on demand, or we'll do Dalek voices for food. <laughs> <laughs> I should have had him do our voiceover as a Dalek voice, but I didn't think about it at the time. Maybe if he comes back to Chicago Tardis again, we'll do that. But I know that the Dalek voice on screen is just awful. Oh, it's, it's terrible. Yeah, and the next time they appear, they're so awful that Nicholas Briggs, when they release it on DVD, is contracted to redo the voices mm. for this story from 1973. Mm. Oh my god, they overdub. Yes. Yeah, that tells me how bad the voices were, because they, they, they had no idea. They hadn't been using the Daleks since uh, Evil of the Daleks in 68, 67? 67, yeah. Yeah, so they forgot how to do Dalek voices. 
and they didn't have a Nicholas Briggs around who uh, can do them at the drop of a hat, and I mean any hat. <laughs> and, and for some reason, they couldn't get a hold of Peter Hawkins, who did them in the Trout era, and they used two actors who had never done them before. Right, and never did them and, again. And never did them again, <laughs> right. And, and, and if, they, if you watch the new, the new version, it's so much better. Oh, yeah. So much, so much more sinister. When we get to that story, I'll definitely show bits of it to you, and I'll show you the original version, and I'll show you the new, because oh, it really, it really is a there is a huge difference. Yes. All right. What else about the book? <laughs> um, the description of the inmates mm-hmm. screaming and yelling, and how they were kind of a warning. Oh yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. And I thought the historical mm-hmm. prologue was very nice about oh, starting yeah. with Tyburn and the tradition of the index. Is that is that purely for the book or is that era reference? Oh yeah, Tyburn, yeah. yeah. Well. Do they talk about it? Yeah, no. That's for, not So this is a tradition of the inmates to make the noise for yeah. someone who's condemned. That's a sign that Terrence Nichols is still interested. Well and in terms of horror for the first couple of pages, it looks like the doctor is attending an execution. We don't know yet yes. that it's going to mm-hmm. be the machine. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, this story, for the longest time, made people think that the doctor was in favor of uh, capital punishment. It's because of a line that John Pertwee has that actually is meant to be scathing. So he's saying, oh yes, well, we should get rid of them, of course. It's ha <laughs> yeah. No, we shouldn't. He values life, apparently, obviously. But uh, yeah, that bit with the Tyburn tree at the very beginning is all dicks, all the time. It's, it's <laughs> super effective, and it totally lends itself to the the scenes of the people hallucinating and, and dying. It's just yeah, it goes hand in hand and creates this really creepy atmosphere mm-hmm. of like unease. Just like what the especially when like the doctor hears the inmates start freaking out and mm-hmm. doing the noise, and he's like, oh. What's going on? Yeah. So the machine's on the move. Yeah. Sort mm. of. I don't want to be too pretentious and say Greek chorus prison exactly, but the, <laughs> well, the constantly slowly changing situation in the prison is a really nice additional layer of mm-hmm. unease to the mm-hmm. entire story because oh, yeah. it actually never subsides until towards the end. There are always things going on there. Mm-hmm. There's always a, a very tentative balance of power. And I thought that gave, like I said, the undercurrent of horror a lot more. I agree. In fact, that the missile subplot ends up being like an afterthought in some ways. Even though it's on the cover, that's really not what the story is about at all. No. It's a gorgeous cover, though. The book actually does a better job describing the prison than the actual prison you see on the show. Because they they don't have anything to do with the, the tree and how they hung people. Uh, but it sounded like a medieval fortress in the book, that it might have been dark and dingy and completely different than the lit-up industrial set that they used for the show. Oh, yeah. That's the yeah. other thing. That even though the exteriors of the uh, prison were done at an actual castle, mm-hmm. which is why it's described as one, the ex- interiors were all on set. Right. So BBC, yeah, over overlit. Under budget. <laughs> yeah, because to me, it it's you know it's a place that has this history of of horror and death and, and yeah. what a great place to feed right and, and right and so the the yeah. whole the whole thing has this this other element that that fear is 
is driving this place. You know, there's all these theories about uh, when bad things happen at one place, a lot of times it leaves a residue or it leaves a feel like a, yes. an energy. Oh, and yeah. so, yeah, that description of the prison, it's like, yeah, this is a, this is a dirty place. There's a lot of bad mm. energy here. It's not the plot was going to turn out. The master brought the, the parasite there to feed on people like Mailer. People with some especially right. horrific fears who have really seen some things. Right. It didn't quite pan out, pan out that way. But. No, it didn't. And it's kind of a shame, too, because you think that that is where it's going and it doesn't end up going there at all. I guess I really liked some of the things that were seemingly developing that I was just imagining being developed. Mm-hmm. So I guess I liked the... I feel like it really fizzled at the end. Not not horribly, yeah. but compared to what I thought was being built up to. Yeah, yeah it does. When it I, does. I was getting... Um, it made me think of the Green Mile as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Except that's even more horrific. Well, yeah, but just how there's, there's the one character that is kind of the, the big bad that ends up being the... All of his thoughts are removed, all the bad is removed, and he's just this good soul. Yeah. This good person that would never hurt Fly. Mm-hmm. And that reminded me of the character from The Green Mile. In fact, that reminded me most of a Star Trek episode. Uh, it reminded me specifically of... Um, and I'm, in which Kirk is split into two people. And one's evil and one's good. The enemy within, that's it. Yes, that's Yeah. And it definitely has that feeling to it, that whole subplot with um, Barnum, you know. And it's kind of a shame that they do to him what they do, but he ends up being the Chekhov's gun for the story, doesn't he? Because he's there at the beginning having his Mm -hmm. evil drained out, and then he later ends up being the immunity that they need to carry this thing around. So that actually works out kind of nicely. It's just a shame they have to kill him off, obviously. Yeah, that seemed the latest. I, I wasn't sure why they had to have the master run him over with the car, but um, it just—he just got up. I think he went. The story goes, he went back to help the master because he couldn't leave anybody in pain, and that's how the master recovers from the machine and and all that. It's kind of kind of his own downfall, you know. And Doctor Summers mentions that in the beginning. He's either an idiot or a saint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think he ends up kind of being a saint at the end. And yeah. that, that mention that you had, uh, that you just said about uh, Dick's describing why he goes back, it's not as clear on screen. So no, that actually, it's not. Yeah, much better on the page. Yeah. Dick's definitely improves some of the more subtle stuff in the story. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. That being said... <laughs> <laughs> The dirty-minded people that we are on this podcast, um, I don't know if anybody else found it interesting that we had lines such as, uh, oh God, where is it? That after doing a lot of throbbing all throughout the book, the machine, when they find it in the beginning of chapter 16, is not only inflamed, it's fully aroused. Yes, yes, that was a straight <laughs> yes. line. Yes. <laughs> his first scene, the master produced and lit a large and opulent cigar. <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did. He's really fixated, that man. Yeah, in fact, some of the few times you ever see smoking on Doctor Who is either the master is smoking or the doctor being evil is smoking. It would like be wrong if the master were not smoking. That yeah. just... Oh, yeah. I'm surprised Missy isn't allowed to, but she probably does. Alright, anything else we want to say about the book? We see a return of the self-healing coma. 
That seems to be a Don Houghton trope. Yeah. But of course, these are the only two scripts he ever did. So, Venusi and Nikita. Yeah. That's a Don Houghton thing, obviously. Yeah. A- apart from the things that I want to pick apart, I'm trying not to do it here. But uh, some of the some of the things you can pick apart on screen really come out here, such as the Doctor even needing to speak Hokkien because of the TARDIS's uh, ability to translate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The Brigadier should have been able to understand everything in that conversation, and he doesn't. Unless the TARDIS is just that out of, uh, you know, hors de combat, as you say. Maybe the Time Lord gift isn't working. I thought the diplomat was going to turn out to know how to effectively disable the missile. Like, oh, we've always known how to deal with those. We've known for quite a while how to deal with yours, but he had built a rapport with the doctor, mm-hmm. so he was willing to do it and disposed to. But, but instead, no. he just says, I, I'll deal with this, and... Uh, the doctor says something along the lines of, oh, don't worry, old chap, we'll take care of it. Oh, okay, we're gone then, bye. And you don't hear from them for the rest of the story. Right. It's just bizarre. It did seem like there was a layoff a few episodes then. Yeah. But, well, that's a six-parter for you. Yeah. This one isn't quite as inspired as Inferno was. I will say right. that. And I don't know, Larry, if you feel the same way as I do. I... This is one of those stories that I just never pay that much attention to, but when I'm forced to sit down and watch it, I'm kind of like, oh, this actually zips along pretty quickly for a six-parter. Just as yeah, I, I agree. It's, uh, it's, it's a story that I really loved the first time I saw it and didn't think about it until they said it was no longer available in color, and I thought, well, that's too bad, because uh, I really enjoyed Perkley's Doctor, but it's, it's not my favorite Perkley story. I, I, I think Inferno is a much better story. Absolutely. Uh, and much better written, and much, uh, even as a seven-parter, holds you to the story, whereas this one, they probably could have done The Mind of Evil in four parts. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm probably, sure if they'd gotten rid of the missile subplot, they could have done it in four. And yeah. that would have been much more yeah. Mind of Evil. I would, have, I would have been fine with this whole story taking place in the prison. They, what they could have done is not only that, get rid of the missile, get rid of the whole Chinese thing, the master brings this mind parasite that he figures out pretty quick that he can't control and has to collaborate with the doctor to defeat this thing, otherwise, you know, the master being the most evil is probably the worst candidate for controlling this thing, so they could have done a different story entirely, you know, not, not of course to rewrite Mr. Houghton, but that's where I would have gone with it. Yeah, exactly. But we sadly did not get that. We no. got what we did. Yeah, what we got. <laughs> we always say that about Doctor Who, don't we? Right. All right. Anything else we want to bring up about the book itself? I always love Andrew Skillinger and his artwork. Oh uh, yeah. Point that out. Uh, I've uh, I've gotten to know him pretty well over the last couple of years. He's a wonderful guy. Him and Chris Achilles, of course. Just, just amazing stuff, and it really gives you the feel. I think it's supposed to give you the feel of the book, right from the cover, and I thought that was great. I Unfortunately, I do not like the neon Doctor Who logo for any of the, these stories, but that's what they were using at the time. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that they do that, that they have the current logo rather than the one that was current for that time, because yeah. this really would have looked better with the uh, Pertwee logo or, or the... Uh, <laughs> Or the McGann logo, depending on how you look at it. Well, it's interesting because the audiobook uses the Pertwee logo. Does it really? Yes. 
Okay. So it is. I, I like that cover a lot better. It's the same cover, just with a different logo. And uh, and the, the audiobook is published by Penguin Books, by the way. Okay. I'm going to have to look that up then. I know the BBC had been handling it for a while, so something has shifted there a bit. Oh, wait, you've got something, Dalton. Uh, just just a couple little uh, things I found interesting. Uh, there's the scene where Joe tries to hand the doctor the gun, and he says, you keep it, Joe. You're trained to use those things. They only make me nervous. That was a nice character moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's something that has been echoed in other books as well, as the doctor kind of guns. Like, mm, yeah. No, thank you. It's like you military types can... Take care of this sort of thing. You, you right. deal with it. Um, blah, 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 blah. There's also something that upset me a bit, and I remember it from the end of the episode, is that Joe is really upset about Barnum, and the doctor snaps at her and says, how do you think I feel? And she actually apologizes, and I'm like, oh, for heaven's sake, girl, don't take that from him. Yeah, but she gets better about that. Yeah, she's not Liz yet. No, she gets she ends up getting snarky after a while, which is nice. But that works with sure. development that she's young and could have easily not dazzled but intimidated by yeah. already figures still. Well, and if yeah, if she's his assistant, then he's she's not going to initially no. bump back. No. When she has some rapport and builds more of a relationship, she might be you know, yeah. likely to. Um, this. Just I have highlighted the doctor tipped the desk over on top of the master. I just <laughs> yes. just the image yes. of just, the just like literal <laughs> table flip. Yeah, in my mind, that whole scene was terrific physical comedy. Yes. Where sort of like yes. goes backwards in the chair as mm-hmm. on screen. Oh, it's hilarious in the show because not only does he get the dust on him, he spills water and the master slips and falls like yeah, and hurdy. They talk about that too. Yeah, there's some good there's some good physical comedy there. Um, that I liked going back to the the beginning of the book with with the initial use of the Keller machine. Um, whenever Joe and the Doctor are coming in, uh, the Doctor says morbid lot of sensation seekers, and Joe gave him a look. Why did you do it? Why did you insist on coming? Scientific curiosity said the Doctor with an air of offended yes. dignity. Like, I'm not yeah. like any of the rest of these people that are here for this. I have a separate reason. Um, yeah, just kind of. Like, no, you're not any better. Um, it is a shame we don't get Dix describing more of the doctor mugging for the camera. Yes. <laughs> because that's funny. Um, and then just uh, towards the end of the book, there's they're talking about the hired mercenaries. And uh, I don't know who was saying this, but someone says everything's a matter of money these days. Yes. And that is that just makes me think of modern yeah, just a little if bit. If you have enough money, you can become president. <laughs> True. Yeah, so just, yeah, some little, little right. things. Well, shall we do the Goodreads thing? We can do it. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.62 which is only a tenth of a point below Terror of the Autons and Inferno. Michael, in our Goodreads group, gives us only two stars. And he says, While some will tell you The Demons is the most pertwee of all the pertwee-era stories, I'd argue that honor goes to The Mind of Evil instead. 
I consider this one an underrated classic of the era, and it's one of my favorite Pertwee stories. So it's a shame that this was adapted by Terrence Dix in the 80s, rather than Terrence Dix in the 70s. This one suffers a bit from the pacing. While listening to this as an audiobook, I noticed that the first two episodes take about half the running time. Yes, there is some unit action that's condensed, but I found myself wishing this one had been adapted earlier. Yeah, I can see that. T.E. also wrote a uh, review for our Goodreads group saying, Although not prime dicks, this is very readable dicks, I love that, working from a good script, the psychedelic effects of the machine and the nightmares it produces are well handled. The characterization was efficient, and in some places could have used a little more depth than the stereotype show on screen. 3.5? Better than average, but not great, he says, is a question. Daniel Kukwa gives it four stars and says late in his target novelization career, with his attention turning to the more forgotten premiere stories, Terrence Dix strikes gold. The Mind of Evil is a prime example of Dick's skill at being concise without sacrificing detail or depth. Don Houghton would be pleased with this excellent adaptation of his scripts. And finally, Becky, with an I, gives the book both its highest rating of five stars and its shortest review. The most convoluted master plan ever. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So, we're going to start with Larry. Larry, out of five stars, how many stars would you give this and why? I would give this one four and a half stars out of five. And uh, the reason for that is I, I love the fact that this book goes into much more detail to the suffering of the victims of the Keller machine than, than the show did. And a little bit more of the, of the details regarding the subplot of the missile and some of the other uh, the thing, the time that's spent with Barnum. There's a lot more there and the introduction of the prison. I thought it was really well done. And, you know, the, the Michael, uh, who loved his good reason, I wish um, they would understand that the W.H. Allen Company changed hands four times in the 70s, and Doctor Who was not their priority. So Terrence Dix had no decision into when he did a book. So, unfortunately, they did do this one later than, say, Dan the Daleks was done in 75, and this one was done in 85, so they're going to be different. But I still think he nails it on a lot of the details. Yeah, he absolutely does. And certainly you can tell that he cares about the story a lot, being that it's from his era. Yeah, this yes. is yes. this is definitely not the late dicks that we have read that were, it is abysmal. Yeah. This is much better. The tired old dicks. <laughs> the tired old dicks, indeed. <laughs> uh, Dalton, what would you give it? Uh, I, I'm sitting between like a 3.5 and a 4. Um so we'll just go 3.75. Yeah, I really I really enjoyed a lot of the descriptors here. The, the atmosphere was very effective. Um, really creepy. Uh, and I'm not really one for horror, so this this totally, yeah, got, got to me. Okay. Right. Very effective. Allison? I really liked the uh, introductory scenes for the Doctor, you know, heckling at the prison, and then the Master, where he's in the canvas tent, and then the Man of Style and Distinction, dressed to the nines with a huge cigar, emerges. Um, I actually really like the, the cover, not, not, not the logo, unless I hear a but the, the painting. Um, it had some really nice horror framing devices. I don't really like horror that much. Uh, kind of kicked out of the story by the occasional bizarre racial remark. Yeah. Um, and, 
there were a lot of things I felt he was building towards that he didn't quite get to. So there's a lot to like, a lot to say, hey, seriously about. I'm going to go 2.5, which okay. uh, Larry may not realize how very stingy I am. Which is actually, So it's actually pretty pretty positive. That's for good me. for Allison. That's it's, good for Allison. Yeah, and I think, I think really the key elements for me were, I thought that the Master was written with terrific presence and panache and okay. style. And then the sort of low-level hum, almost savage hum of the prison in the background, I think, oh, gave yeah. an yeah. extra dimension that we haven't had in the plot mechanics-heavy stories that we've been reading recently. True, true. And um, as for me, I, I, I will ding it a few points for Terrence Dix proving once again that he's very woke for the 1970s, but not very woke for the 1980s. What is so, it with that? It's yeah, over and over. It, 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 it's weird, because we talked about that early 70s liberalism, and it, you just can't describe it, really. But it's not as bad in this book as it has been in others. It could have been far worse than the Chinese subplot. That being said, when it sings, it really does. I actually am a bit of a horror fan. And I did find the bits in this book much more horrific than what we see on screen, even though Pearlie is doing some really good horrified acting for once. Usually he just mugs and pulls a face, but <laughs> here it actually looks like he's genuinely in pain a couple times, and that's really satisfying in its own way. Delgado obviously is excellent, and he's captured on the page. We get the Roger Delgado master, here on the page in much the same way we did in the last book. So I'd say 3.5. Yeah, this one was pretty good. Dad, briefly, that I like that this master talks a big game. He's actually not that powerful no. compared to what he would like people to, to believe he is. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's more interesting than limitless power. He can be Agreed. kicked backwards in an office chair. And yeah. <laughs> and have a desk thrown out. It's a good foil to the doctor as well, because the doctor does the same damn thing. Yes, the doctor is not all that powerful right now either. He's kind of earthbound but himself. But he talks a big game. He and certainly he's does. he's able to charm his way out of paper bag. This is true. So, I, I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Larry, before we let you go, let me just ask you, um, where uh, could you describe your podcast for us and where interested listeners can find it? Absolutely, and I will say for the note that a hardcover edition of The Mind of Evil in this condition can go anywhere from $50 on up, depending on, because it was a low print run. I saw it at Half Price Books for 20 I almost got it. That's actually not a bad price. I would grab it there. Um... The uh, original price was $12 in the United States, and uh, it sold very well in 85. Uh, the Doctor Who Collectors podcast can be found just like this podcast on iTunes and anywhere podcasts are found. You can also find us at DoctorWhoCollectors.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Each episode goes through the merchandising aspect of Doctor Who, everything that was made from 1964 to the present day. Uh, which starts with the Dalek book that was written in 64 by Souvenir Press, and some of the latest things that are coming out from Eagle Moss figurines, and uh, you, you name it, it was done. I just recently saw a Tardis and Dalek sugar and creamer set <laughs> yes. that, uh, just, just, that I saw recently. So I, I always take pictures of these things, and people send me this stuff, and I try to find out more about them. Um, my most, I think the most interesting episode I did was about the Pinnacle Editions oh, yeah. of Doctor Who and that how they were completely rewritten for the U.S. market. 
So, yes, uh, we will have to and, talk and, about those. Absolutely, and uh, one of the big rumors out there, a lot of sellers are trying to pass off hardcover editions of Pinnacle books, and I have it in writing from Kensington Books that owns Pinnacle that they never did that. However, the Aeonian Book Company used the same logo as Pinnacle on their hardcover books. Oh. So there's a lot of interesting stories behind the merchandise that I go into, and uh, of course my favorite part is, if, if you have to catch it, my theme song, which is Who's Doctor Who, sung by Fraser Hines. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little bit of catch. That sounds lovely. It is indeed. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing, and I also I end every episode with an audio clip of some nature that I found, including the TV Dalek Century One uh, record of the Chase episode six. Oh yes, uh, I have that. Uh, and I've got on the way coming a promo disc from the Doctor Who movie 1996. That th- those were given away, but hardly anybody knew about them. So, so definitely, uh, I, I, I thank you for having me as a guest. I look forward to coming back again. And uh, please, uh, you know, give this, I always uh, give this podcast a big plug at the beginning. So I hope we share a lot of listeners. Absolutely. Thank you. And we're going to be seeing you again, right? Uh, for uh, which one? Day of the Daleks. Day of the Daleks. And we'll prob- you'll probably be joining us in person that time so we don't have the uh, Skype weirdness that we did tonight. Yes. <laughs> Very happy to go there in person. Yes. Fantastic. We'll look forward to it. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we get an early Terrence Dix book with his novelization of Clause of Access, and we are going to be joined in person by the newly married Trey Quartet. Yes, we can see Trey again. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Your Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces like a crazy person. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Watch videos of our first 12 episodes of YouTube forward slash user forward slash Everdolic forward slash videos and of course Everdolic's commutes, which is dead now. Follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, and subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email us at, at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel, tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.